Let's talk tonight about liturgical psalms. You say, preacher, I hadn't heard that word in a long time. Liturgical. Uh, you, we may not even be familiar with what that word actually means. I want to talk about that tonight. I, I want us in the time we have left to talk about teaching truth to the next generation. So I've got a lot of material just to throw out to you. And uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't want to be like, a, a, you know, trying to drink water from a fire hydrant. Uh, and I don't want to be confusing. But I do want to talk about this because I, I really believe this is a vital, vital part of any and every local church. So let's just jump head first in. Uh, Christian liturgy. You say, well, what is Christian liturgy? I've heard the concept. I've heard that word used before, liturgy. Well, it literally is a pattern for worship used uh, by a Christian congregation, by a local church, a pattern for worship used on a regular basis in order to emphasize certain key truths and doctrines of the Christian faith. In other words, uh, for instance, it's it's closely akin to an order of service, okay? Now, every service in our church, we have an order of service that we follow. But it's an order of service. It's, it's certain elements in a church service for the expressed purpose of teaching something, whether it be the recitation of certain creeds, which is common in some circles, some local churches do that. They, they recite certain creeds every single service over and over again. And, and it and it's almost becomes habitual, right? You know, if you walk into that particular church or that particular denomination or this group or that group, that local church, part of that service, you're going to recite a certain creed. Okay, that's called liturgy. And it's not... It's not supposed to be some empty, vain, time-wasting, time-consuming practice. It, is, it was and is designed for a particular reason, to stress truth, to stress doctrine, and to somehow, even in the repetition of the recitation, getting that ingrained in the psyche and in the heart of those churchgoers. Now, not every church does that. Our church does not do that. I'm not saying that we will. I'm not saying that we should. I'm saying that that does go on in local churches. So when I talk about this, it's not foreign. It may be foreign to some of us, but it's not a strange concept. It's certainly not an unbiblical concept. But in the early centuries of church history, the entire book of Psalms was recited and sung every single week. I'm talking about the entire book was supposedly sung or recited uh, oftentimes as part of the routine of morning prayers and evening prayers. I mean, it was ingrained in the early church Christians for literally hundreds of years in the early church the recitation of the Psalms, all of the Psalms, was supposed to be done every week. 
They had specific times in the morning that they would pray. And remember that the book of Psalms uh, was for centuries the official prayer book or the book of worship for the Christian church. So tonight when I talk about liturgical Psalms, the truth of the matter is the entire book was used for liturgical purposes. The entire book was in itself a liturgy. A recitation that would be prayed, quoted, read aloud for the express purpose of memorization. Getting these key doctrines and these key themes that we've been preaching about these last 12 weeks into the mind and heart of the Christians who would use this as part of their not just weekly prayer, weekly recitation, but daily recitation. Now... Obviously, through these centuries, right, the church by and large, local churches and individual Christians have kind of gotten away from that to a certain degree, to a large degree. But at least what I'm trying to say is it was a vital part of the daily life of these early church Christians, you got to remember that before the Bible completely, the New Testament was canonized, that this was the scriptures that the early church had. They may not have had a complete gospel of John. They might not have had Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They certainly didn't have the book of Acts. They did not probably up until a certain point. They didn't have the letters, the epistles of the apostles, right? But they did have... The Old Testament scriptures and a large chunk of Old Testament scriptures was the book of Psalms. And it was, if I could say it this way, for many of them, it was their lifeline. That's why you see in the New Testament, you see the book of Psalms in various forms quoted over and over and over again, even by the Lord Jesus himself. The book of Psalms was used as the temple hymnal for Jews even in the days of Christ. You say, where was the song book? Where was the hymn book in the temple? It was the book of Psalms. It's, It's interesting, on the night before Jesus was crucified, the very night he was betrayed and arrested, remember at the end of the Passover meal, remember what it says they did? It says they, they sang a hymn. You know where the hymn came from? It came from the book of Psalms. And Jesus himself and the apostles would have known just because it was a recitation. It was something that was common to them. Again, we're talking about these liturgical psalms. I'm going to throw a word out to you, and I want you to contemplate it with me. It's the word catechism. <laughs> You're like, what? Catechism. Again, another word we don't use often. You may or may not have heard of catechisms. What is a catechism, Christian? Well, it's a summary of the principles of the Christian religion in the form of questions and answers. It's used for the instruction of Christians. Catechism has long served as a learning tool 
for the church down through the ages. Again, the American church or the Western church has gotten away from some of these things. I, I'm going to introduce you or tell you about. Uh, it's, it's, it's called the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Westminster Catechism. In 1643, the English Parliament commissioned a group of theologians and scholars to develop a systematic teaching and confession of faith to be learned and taught among God's people. After regularly meeting for over five years, this group of biblical scholars and theologians, they, they, they came together and they formulated and produced a catechism. Again, a body, a work that outlined and articulated what it was that the church believed. So this catechism, it, it covered subjects like the doctrine of God, the Trinity, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. It covered things like creation, the fall of man, the Ten Commandments. And it went one by one through the Ten Commandments and through these questions and answers and Scripture references along with each question and answer. Uh, they literally broke down the Ten Commandments and analyzed them. It covered key doctrines of Scripture like the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of adoption, the doctrine of redemption, atonement, sanctification. It addressed the Lord's Supper. It addressed baptism. It addressed Christian ethics and morals. It addressed eschatology, which is the doctrine of the end time events. It addressed ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the local church. It addressed the teaching of eternal torment in hell and the lake of fire and eternal judgment. It even addressed the biblical role of civil government and our response to civil government. It addressed the issue of marriage. It certainly addressed the issue of the gospel. In these 120 to 130 questions and answers and set of biblical references, it was designed, ladies and gentlemen, for a parent or a pastor, or pastor, a school teacher, a spiritual mentor to ask these questions and to teach the child or to teach the teenager or teach the student or teach the new convert or teach the congregant in that local church these biblical answers. Since then, there have been multiple catechisms developed by various groups committed to strict biblical orthodoxy. We're not talking about people that, that want to fudge on truth. We're talking about groups and churches and pastors that are very serious, deadly serious about getting theology correct. And can I say this, dear one? We ought to be deadly serious about getting theology correct. You may be tempted to say, no, no, wait a minute, Christian. <laughs> that doesn't sound very Baptist. Sounds too much like Roman Catholicism. Friends, did you know that a Baptist catechism from devout Baptist pastors and theologians was formulated and published in 16... 
actually 1677 and adapted and revised in 1689? Did you know that Charles Spurgeon, perhaps arguably, by the way, the greatest New Testament pastor, at least the most noted Baptist pastor in history, do you know that Spurgeon formulated and published his own catechism for this very purpose? Did you know that Baptist churches and Baptist families have been using this form of pedagogy for well over four centuries? So let me give you an example. You say, where are we going? I'm going to tell you where we're going. We're going somewhere with this. Okay, let me give you an example of what this, this is from the Baptist catechism from 1677. I don't know if you can see it or not, but, but the very first question, I'm just going to give you the first four questions. Question number one, who was the first and best of beings? And here's the answer. God is the first and best of beings. That's simple, but oh, isn't that true? And here's the biblical references that go along with it. So here's what would happen, okay? Parents, grandparents, teachers, pastors, mentors, instructors. Just like you and I have done and have, was done to us with flashcards in school. <laughs> Y'all remember flashcards? <laughs> They'd sit down with their children, dads and moms, and they'd go through the, these questions. They're short questions with simple answers. Answers that are memorable, things they can remember, the kids can remember it, new converts can remember it, the church body can remember it, Christians can remember it, and that's what the point is. It was a way to teach truth and teach doctrine. The second, question number two, what is the chief end of man? Here's the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy God forever. Again, a simple yet biblical response. Question three, how do we know there's a God? So here's the answer that the children, the new converts, the church would learn. The light of nature in man and the works of God plainly declare that there is a God. But his word and spirit only do effectually reveal him unto us for our salvation. And then there's the list of verses that correspond with that. Question four, what is the word of God? The scriptures of the Old and New Testament. Being given by divine inspiration are the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And again, there is the explanation. And here's, ladies and gentlemen, here's something that you say, why do you share this with us? Because I wonder tonight, and, and, and seriously before the Lord, I wonder how my children would do answering those four questions. I wonder if they would balk. I wonder if they would struggle. I wonder if they would stutter. I wonder if they would stammer for the correct, simple answer to those questions. And they've been raised in a preacher's home. They've had years and years of Christian school. But how would my kids do answering that question if they couldn't look? <laughs> And they couldn't cheat. 
And they couldn't have the flashcard in front of them. So then the Holy Spirit says, all right, Christian, (laughs) don't ask how your kids would do. CP, how would you do? (laughs) Answering these questions. (laughs) Could you give a biblical answer? Could you give Bible references? Could you take somebody to book, chapter, and verse? You see, all these are, and there's 120 to 130, depending on which catechism you look at. It's a biblical question with a biblical answer and biblical references to substantiate what the answer is. Very simple, very succinct, but it encapsulates what we are to believe and how we are to live as Christians. And that's why, gang, for three to four centuries of church history, those things were so ingrained. Even in people who may not have even been professing Christians, but they had a mom and dad who, through the help of the local church, they instilled these things into their children. I'm going to give you another word. We're coming down the home. This obviously is going to be in two parts, okay? Catechesis. It's the process of teaching this form of instruction. In fact, that word catechesis comes from a Greek word, katecheo, meaning instruction by, and, and, and here it is, by word of mouth. Word of mouth. What's the best way to teach somebody? Word of mouth. Word of mouth explanation. And ladies and gentlemen, hear me carefully. That's what we are supposed to do in the church, in Sunday school, even in top town. You say, well, those three-year-olds, they can't retain a whole lot. No, they can retain more than you and I think they can. You say, well, those babies don't retain a whole lot. It just goes down in their diaper. (laughs) Can I tell you what, though? Hey, hey, you know this, that those sweet little babies and those little toddlers, something's going on in their heart and mind, and they're retaining it. This is what we should be doing and are doing in kid church and in our our student ministry and in our teen ministry and right now at teen church. This, you say, are they going through catechisms? Oh, no, they're not. Maybe they should be. But what I'm saying, the word of mouth, verbal instruction. Hey, can I say this? We've been talking about, praying about, and emphasizing, promoting discipleship groups, D groups. Can I tell you what a D group is? It's four men or four ladies sitting around a table with an open Bible and their journal, and they are sharing with one another the truth of the Word of God as it spoke to them and as it changed and is changing their lives. And here's the deal. What is it? It's verbal word of mouth instruction. That's how we best learn. Can I say this? And I am a preacher of the word. God called me to be a preacher and a communicator, a teacher of the word of God. But I know this, that just as much as learned in a smaller setting of verbal instruction as is learned in a big setting. And God designed it to be that way. That's not to discount the public gathering and the public sermon and the public preaching. 
But there is something important, and we cannot forsake this form of instruction as well. And I'm coming down the home stretch. And remember, as we continue this next Wednesday night, that for centuries, that's how the book of Psalms was communicated. That's how it was taught. Those faithful Jews sitting down with their children and sitting down with their husband and sitting down with their wife and sitting down with their neighbors and they would communicate to one another God's songbook, the prayer book of the Jews and the prayer book of the early church for hundreds of years.